Welcome to episode 42 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Mr. Sargent, how are you doing? Uh, I am good. It's been an interesting week. Uh, it's an interesting time. The weather is hinting at getting warm. <laughs> it's it's like flirting. It's flirting. Spring is, spring is around the corner. Well, let's Finally. Hope so. Let's hope so. I had a chance to see the Snyder Cut. Been wanting to watch it for quite some time, probably since like the beginning of the pandemic. As soon as I heard that it was going to go straight to HBO Max. I was like, I am so there. So I sat down. I took my Thursday when it came out on the 18th, laid back. And, bro, I watched the Snyder Cut. All right. All right. Before we jump into the Snyder Cut, I got to go back here. We got we, we to give some context here. Because, first of all, I want to know, what were your thoughts on Zack Snyder prior to this? Were, were you and, and did you like Man of Steel or the 300 or after Superman 2? With Christopher Reeve, you mean the Richard Donner cut Christopher Reeve, the Richard Donner original Superman part two from the 1980s. That movie, that's the last great Superman movie I saw until Man of Steel. Really? Yep. And to this day, it's the best superhero movie about Superman I've seen more than Brandon Routh's or Brandon Ruth's, uh, which I, I, I essentially thought it was a terrible made Superman. Um, it was too much of a of a safe homage to the original one when you got Christopher Nolan's Batman coming out and you still have this flowery, you know, type of sunsetting Superman that is not it just just it just seemed like they just needed to put him out to dry, man, you know. Um and then you have Zack's vision of Superman where he kills someone in the movie. And obviously that the last 20 minutes of Man of Steel, dude, one of the best fighting scenes, one of the most epic fighting scenes you'll see in superhero movies, period. You know, so I really enjoyed Man of Steel. It's one of my favorite movies of superheroes. Man of Steel, I was not impressed. It was head and heels above the Brandon Ruth. I actually thought that the ending was the weakest part. I thought that the fight went on too long. second so 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 somebody gives you 10 more minutes of action which means that they stretch out the action for those 15 to oh i'm sorry mike you're a film critic so the pennies that you probably <laughs> give the concession people because you get your popcorn for free and they give you another 15 3d full imax experience of fighting and visual effects and you're complaining? Okay, I'm going to break it down. First of all, in the words of John Truby, 
John Truby is a, is a uh, screenwriting guru, and you know I'm a filmmaker too. So for me, I look at a film three ways, film critic, film lover, and a filmmaker. So John Truby said something very important. He says, action can be the death of plot. Why? Because the plot moves along. Like if two characters fight, the story does not move until one of them wins. So the plot literally stops while they're fighting. And for me, the movie just stops. They're fighting, they're destroying buildings, they're fighting, they're brewing another building, they're fighting, there's a big ship, they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting. For me, it was the, the, that was the, the penultimate example of action being the death of plot. Now, that's just me. I want to know now, what did you think of Batman versus Superman? That's him right there. There he is. He's shot. Who's that? You must be new. That is Bruce Wayne. Mr. Wayne. Clark Kent, Daily Planet. What's your position on the Bat Vigilante in Gotham? Civil liberties are being trampled on in your city. People living in fear. He thinks he's above the law. The Daily Planet criticizing those who think they're above the laws is hypocritical. What'd you say? Considering every time your hero saves a cat out of a tree, you read a puff piece editorial about an alien. You could burn the whole place down. Most of the world doesn't share your opinion, Mr. Wayne. Maybe it's the Gotham City in me. We just have a bad history with freaks dressed like clowns. Boys! Hmm. Bruce Wayne meets Clark Kent. I love it. I love bringing people together. How are we? Lex. Hi, hello. Lex, it is a pleasure. Ow, wow, that is a good grip. You should not pick a fight with this person. I thought it came too quick. I My problem with the whole DC setup was they were trying to cram in in three movies what Marvel had done in 10 years. And I knew, I saw it. And I was like, you guys are rushing it. We all know you're rushing it. This isn't going to come out the way the Martha thing was the the laughing stock of Hollywood for that whole year with, with Batman versus Superman. I, I resaw it the other day. Listen, anytime I see Superman and Batman together in one film, there's a bit of giddiness just to see it. But unfortunately, it's. You can't love partially. You either love with all of your might or you don't, you know? And to love just 10 minutes of it isn't loving the movie overall. And you have to love the sum of all its parts to be able to really say, this is a movie that I'm going to be talking about for the rest of my life. So I like the movie. I didn't think that that, that was a monumental movement forward for DC. I think it was rushed. I think they didn't really take it seriously. It just seemed like a profit that they were trying to make, just trying to rush to it before Marvel did its thing, and it all collapsed. Before I watched the Snyder Cut, because I had a link, they sent me a link in advance. Before I watched it, I went back and I watched Batman versus Superman. Now, I only saw that movie once. I saw it in the... Now, actually, no, I did see it twice. I saw it twice. I saw it in the theaters. And then I saw it in 4D. They invited me to a 4D screening where, you know, the chair sprays you with water and it rocks around. Uh, it didn't make the movie better. And so 
and all the things that were wrong with the film I felt were there. But when I went back, I watched the ultimate version, which I have on Blu-ray, which has got, it's got like an extra 22 minutes. And I wanted to get into the head of what Zack Snyder, like everything you said, you know, I think you, you, you kind of hit it on the head that the Sunset Superman of the Brandon Ruth was, it was too much of an homage to what had gone past. It did not reinvent itself. And Zack Snyder was trying to reinvent the franchise. And I also think because, you know, he comes from horror and whatnot, his sense of it was, I, I didn't get the feeling that he was a huge fan of the heroes, but he had some ideas of what he could do with them. So watching Batman versus Superman, I agree with, again, everything that you said, it was rushed. They were trying to do in three films, everything Marvel had done in 10. But I, but I also think they were trying to take two epic stories from the comic books. One was the death of Superman, Doomsday, and this, this Batman story where he, you know, he kind of goes rogue and they kind of cram it together. Seeing the ultimate version, I got the famous, the infamous, you, why are you saying Martha? Why are you saying Martha? You know, I, I got that. I, it made more sense because there's a lot more backstory, a lot but more But that's what this whole DC issue is, is exactly what you just said. Background. That's what all of these fucking movies have been missing from DC. It's this like, and, and you could tell it's because every damn movie's been rushed. So it brings me now to the Snyder Cut. So begins the end. For dark time. I've never seen a being this strong. Maybe one. He's back. I spent a lot of time trying to divide us. I made a promise to him on his grave. I need to bring us together. There are enemies coming from far away. They serve an old power. This world is divided. No protectors here. No lanterns. No Kryptonium. It will fall in his name. I thoroughly enjoyed the Snyder Cut. It's night and day versus the original Justice League that Josh Whedon did. It's unrecognizable. It's almost like it's a brand new movie. And why did I like it? Because it breathed, because it gave exposition to all of these characters that needed to be explained. And ultimately, the reason that this works, it's because of the four hours, which then leads me to believe to this new realization that I essentially came up with, Mike. Get ready for the future of cinema. And the future of cinema is going to be Long-form storytelling. The reason I liked the Snyder Cut was because of the four hours. Movie theaters overall, I believe AMC lost like almost a billion dollars in 2020. But what no one wants to consider as fact is that movie theater business were already declining. They weren't growing. If theaters were a stock they would be plunging. 
and this was before the pandemic, all the pandemic did was accelerate its extinction almost. So now movie theaters have very few options left. And one of the options that I think most people have said, and and I agree with, and I think that's the way it's going to go, it's that movie theaters are going to become these luxury experiences for, for rich people. Because a lot of these movie theaters are not going to be able to make money off of indie films. The Angelica can barely make it on indie films. All these movie theaters in New York, like the Metrograph, and indie cinemas cannot sustain themselves. Only the big chains can. And why do those big chains? Because they play the blockbuster stuff. So if you walk in there with with food and like leather reclinable seats, like I pick in South Street Seaport, that is probably the best movie theater in New York City. And it probably costs a lot more, but the experience is amazing. And so if you can sit in something that feels like a lounge chair for four hours, you know, recline, having chips, wine, you could probably watch four hours there of your favorite superheroes. You can even probably do even more if it's at home. Well, you know, I'm glad I do the show with you, Jack. Okay. First of all, uh, I agree with you a thousand percent, but I'll go even further because I, I, I want to hit upon the first thing you think. I think we have definitely evolved as an audience, and I think long-form storytelling, we're very used to it. You know, we need it. We can't sit through a two-hour movie that tries to cram everything in anymore. No, not anymore, man. No, not anymore. We're Event, not demanding it. Fans no, are pissed off, and they're right. going, release the Snyder Cut. Endgame was a three-hour movie. Let's not forget and- Titanic won Best Picture, and it was a three-hour movie. Exactly. So epics in movie theater, I think, like you said, is a very specific thing, and I think that's the only thing that's going to be able to support that business model. But I do think long-form storytelling, my prediction is we're going to see a combination. They're going to have to do things to get people back in the theaters. So whether it's a a TV series that, that gets popular enough and then they're going to end it off with something in the theater, some big, big event, like the inverse of what they've been doing, you know, I can see that happen. Those like kind you of- could do a WandaVision sort of series ends with a cliffhanger that then walks right into the movie theater for a three, four hour extravaganza where the Avengers meet up again, you know? There and it's it is. like X Men come out of nowhere. There it like, is. What the? There it is. And that's what I think they'll do because here's the deal what a long form storytelling can be also is introducing you. See, if DC was smart, because they were always beating Marvel in the TV series game, if DC was smart, what they should have done was taken Smallville, put that guy on screen, put the, put the Flash of the TV series, put that guy on screen. So you got a built-in audience who already knows, like you said, all those hours we've spent with the Marvel heroes. So, you know, 10 movies, that's 20 hours you spent with these people that you only, you got, what, four, five hours with Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman? Let me get back to Snyder, though. And the Snyder Cut, I, I want to preface it to say that I think that asking him, because they really wanted, like you said, they really wanted Avengers. They they were hot for Avengers. They wanted that kind of hit. And to try and cram three or four new heroes, because Aquaman hadn't come out yet. Uh, there no was, one there, had there was even no thought flash. about Cyborg. Right, Cyborg, right. None of these characters, with the exception of Wonder Woman, who had just had a movie, had had a movie yet. And so we had to meet all these new characters. We had to resolve the issues from Batman versus Superman. Superman is dead. We had to figure out why Batman has come back from being all 
branding people to like wanting to save the universe again. All of these things had to be crammed into one movie. That's a huge ask. And I think that Snyder had a vision. And clearly, looking at this, you see he had a vision for where the universe was going to go. And I, like you, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Can I be honest with you? It felt like I was back transported to 1983 and a movie theater with popcorn looking at the original Superman. It just felt... I agree with you in the cinematic experience. I, I would find it to be sort of a cross between Game of Thrones, you know, because there's all this scope and we see Themyscira and, and all of that stuff going on. And do you remember the show Heroes? Do you ever see the first season of Heroes? Yeah, NBC, of course. That, that was, in my opinion, one of the best first seasons of any show ever. Forget the rest of the seasons. It's not even worth watching. But you really... We're visiting with characters. The stories are haven't quite intersected yet. They're turning down the, the call to action. They have all their reasons. I loved all the stuff they did with Cyborg. I loved all the stuff that we established, who every single character is and their relationships, something we had not seen at all. Absolutely. So the only reason we get that, it's because of the availability of the four hours. Now, let's go back really quick. And understand where this came from. So Snyder was doing the Justice League. They were trying to cram everything up. He had a tragic passing in his family. Josh Whedon takes over. He becomes uh, persona non grata number one, especially with Ray Fisher, a toxic environment, Buffy the Vampire Slayer crew from like 10, 20 years ago. They're saying that he was a toxic person as well. There's lawsuits in Warner Media. Josh Whedon, Ray Fisher, everybody else. Uh, Jason Momoa comes in and says, I'm with my boy Ray. Josh didn't treat us right. While all this is happening, the quarantine happens in March and people start going, you know what? Everybody knows that that wasn't the movie that was being made. And the fans started demanding through the hashtag release the Snyder Cut. It's a derivative, a derivative from the saying... Release the Kraken! Which is one of the more <laughs> funniest terms, you know. Release the Kraken. Or you mean release the Snyder Cut. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. No, I, I love the whole concept of the Kraken. So but You're right, you're right. All of a sudden, he's like, okay, you know what? I can do a better job. He had not seen the movie. Christopher Nolan saw it with his wife in a screening room. And, and then told they him, come out, don't see it. Don't see it. <laughs> you can't see this movie. It'll, It'll break be your the heart. death of you. It'll be the death of you, Snyder. Don't watch it. Just do your thing. And so he has, to this day, he still has not seen the original Justice League that Josh Whedon did. So whatever we see here, which is in a four by three, which is a little crazy, by the way. Um, I don't, that's the part that I didn't like, but. I wish I could have had the 16 by 9 letterbox experience. Unfortunately, we didn't get it. Who knows why? I think he wanted to put it in an IMAX. But they give him $70 million. $70 million for reshoots. And it was funny because you saw Ben Affleck look like, okay, it's obviously not the the super fit Ben Affleck version. You can see the guy who let himself go a little bit. And then now they're trying to replicate the original Ben Affleck with this new reshot Ben Affleck carries a little bit of weight. His hair's a little shorter. 
dude, it's just there were some moments in the reshoots that you could tell they were a little funny to me. But I think overall, man, whoever says that this Justice League sucks and it's worse than the other one because it's it's an extra two hours, I, I don't know what they're looking at. I mean, th- this is beyond, like, leagues beyond better than the original Justice League. A lot of times, and, and I've seen we've seen both things happen. We've seen directors when they're stifled by a studio and then they finally release the director's cut, and it's, it's such a different, better experience. But then we've also seen directors who they have a hit, they win an Oscar, and then they need an editor because now they're just indulgent and they make a movie that doesn't have to be that long. And this is really the opposite of that. He wouldn't. He refused to be paid to finish this. So this is a definitely a labor of love. He wanted to make this. Yeah, because his name was being questioned. Remember going into it, no one was liking this dude's movies. Everything was flopping. Everything. Man of Steel, which I love, people were like, eh, I don't know about that. People were 50-50 on it. So his career was collapsing until release the Snyder Cut. And I think he's brought his name back up because... The word on Snyder is that that dude is the nicest, most uh, empathetic guy you'll meet. The actors love him. Momoa loves him. He freaking like gave him a $5,000 Leica uh, camera just to say thank you because he made him look like a million dollars. He made everybody in there look like a million dollars. He essentially just took out all the warts. Like, we're not going to remember anything of the Whedon one. Like, that, that's that been erased. This is now the definitive one. And my question to you, Mike, is what happens now? I have to touch upon something you just said. He did not just uh, revitalize his career. Dude, name a film, and even out of the superhero genre, where the title of the film, your name comes first. He's more important than Justice League. It's Zack Snyder's Justice League. Spike Lee's do the uh, right thing. You go on. It'll say Zack Snyder's Justice League. So I would say, and 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 Spike Lee, it's do the right thing. You don't. It's not listed under Spike Lee's do the right thing. People may call it that, but it's not. I'm just saying what he's done is he's reinvented his brand. His brand now, and you call, and I've just so you know, I, I'm going to admit this to you here on the podcast. I've used the term you used on, when we talked about this last show. You said that this is the first, you know, fan fueled superhero epic, and I was like, oh, he's right. It is. We're in a new age where people have a lot more say. The public has a lot more say, and in influencing yeah, multinational man. corporations. So, yes. The fans wanted it, so they got it. This this is in the pantheon of like, you know, they got a third season of Star Trek, you know, from fans writing in, or they they saved this show, or they brought back this character. This is Oh, they've done that. Yeah. And you know, I I believe that the fans moving forward are gonna have a lot more say in what Snyder or studios do with their IPs. You know, it's interesting. I think fans are going to be like, if you can take an IPO to a to an IP, <laughs> if you can IPO an IP, bro, it would be the most brilliant thing you could possibly do. And I would start with Star Wars. I would take the franchise and I would make it into a stock. 
and then I would sell it as an IPO so every fan can buy stock in the IP. So every single person is a shareholder and is an owner in the stock of the IP. That way they it's too big to fail. If it fails, the economy of the moviegoer fails. And the fandom collapses like the Titanic. That's a great idea. The last thing I want to say about Zack Snyder and what you said and what the future of film and television, because they, they, they have influenced each other at this point. We see television had to become cinematic. And now cinema, like when you see a movie and the character development and the cinematography is not as good as you've seen on something on HBO or Amazon Prime, you're like, wow, like this is a movie. So now... Even more so, will it, it'll take a lot, but Army of the Dead, he's releasing a film and a TV series, and the film, I believe, is going to launch a TV series. Now, that's Zack Snyder. Now, everybody, even if you never heard of Zack Snyder, now you've heard of Zack Snyder. So now, anything he connects his name to, just like Spielberg was in the 80s and the 90s when we were coming up, you know, it's Spielberg Presents. I think Snyder can become that. Thank you, fans. Mike, speaking of revolts <laughs> with cast members, with executives, with fans demanding that they want their movie out when they want it out, is something similar that happened at Condé Nast this past week, where the workforce, the staff of Teen Vogue, essentially revolted and said that they weren't going to accept their new boss, Alexi McCammond a 27-year-old black female reporter who was about to become the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue at Condé Nast under the tutelage of Anna Wintour. Well, let me give you a quick little recap of what happened. Essentially, she's a former political reporter at Axios. She was an editor for a brief moment at Bustle, which is a very female-oriented digital organization. And it seems uh, when she was 17, a teenager... She had written these tweets about Asians, and they were in a very derogatory way. But that was 10 years ago. She's now 27. She apologized for those tweets two years ago. When word gets out that this black female editor-in-chief is about to take over, I believe some Asian Americans that were at that work at Teen Vogue and outside of, I think, Brian Boy, which is... Uh, another fashion blogger, one of the most famous fashion bloggers, he caught the, the tweets, let everybody know, revolt happens, Anna Wintour's like, what are you talking about? She's black. This is what you guys want. You want a black editor-in-chief, a person in a position of power? Now you got it. And everybody was like, you know what? Not that type of black person because that black person is a racist to Asians. And look what's happening in the country right now, damn it. Stop the hate of Asians. So I think this whole thing collapsed on this poor girl. And Mike, she resigned. She resigned. So here's my question to you, Mike. 
Has this gone a little too far? Has cancel culture gone to the point that you can't even be a teenager with your warts and defects and flaws and blemishes as a person? 17, you can't even drink. You can't go to war. You can't do anything. You're, you're a minor at 17. But these people won't let this young 17-year-old girl say those things at that moment that she probably meant and then grew up and saw the world differently. Saw that she was black. Maybe she was, um, maybe they treated her racially somewhere. And, and she must have grown with that. So should it have happened? Well, that's not a simple question. There are a lot of layers to that question. And if you really want me to answer it, if you really want to go there, I'll I'll break it down to at least the three or four layers that I see. I don't like the term cancel culture for a lot of reasons, but what I like about cancel culture is that it brings up the notion of accountability. In terms of accountability, just like anything else, you know, are there going to be casualties of the war, the accountability war? Yes, there will be. But here's what it brings up to me. It brings up a deeper, uh, more significant point to me. The issue of whether she at 17 is the same person at 27, clearly not. And in terms of how she handled it, you know, she spoke with the Asian American Journalists Association, but it really comes down. She apologized three times, Mike. Listen, she's apologized three times, but here's what it came down to. Timing, anti-Asian sentiment is on the rise and it's in the news. The optics are not good. Okay, that's one. Two, at the bottom line, you know, the reason that DC or Warner Brothers made the Zack Snyder cut is because they realized they could get more subscribers and they could make some money. The reason that they let this woman go is because Ulta Beauty paused their ad campaign on Teen Vogue. They were going to lose money. And whenever these people who end up being accountable whether it's generally it's white people saying something racist or a pop star who says something stupid. Generally, it's a question of whether money will be lost. Will William Morris not be able to handle Army Hammer because we find out Army Hammer is all kinds of fucked up? I'm only comparing the two to say that his brand is now tarnished and any film and anybody that's connected to him like Kevin Spacey can't get a job. Situation like this, I think that this is extreme. I think that it is a question of timing. I think she did the right thing. I think she, she clearly has grown. She was 17. But what, here's the bigger issue it brings up to me. And this is something that has been spoken about quite a bit right now in the black community. You know, you and I have talked here, and the reason we do this show is because we want to support and we're all about unity between the races. But we're all about that because there isn't unity between the races. Asians have been racist to black people since I can remember encounters with Asian people. Now, do I have Asian friends? Do I have Chinese, Korean, Japanese friends? Absolutely. But have I been targeted? I mean, it used to be a running joke when I was younger, as a teenager. I remember us going into Chinatown and, you know, we, we're going in, going into the deli in Chinatown. And as soon as we walk in, the guy behind the counter, what you look for? What you look for? And he, he's like, we're, we're looking, you know, we're looking in the thing. We want to buy a soda. He's like, well, what are you looking for? What, what? And he was so honest that we left the store. Now, then that became our joke. What do you look for? What do you look for? Now, we were doing a Chinese accent and we were, in, in, in a way, you could say that's mocking. But 
what we were dealing with, what we were coming from is just this racist attitude. Anybody that lives in New York knows if you go into a Korean deli and if you're a person of color, they're going to watch you like a hawk. So there's been tension between the Asian community and the black community forever. And, and why? I think for the same reason all the other communities that come to this country have issues with people of color because of how they come here and see us because of how we're portrayed in the media and everything else we've talked about on this show. So what this brings about to me is at 16, 15, 16, 17, yeah, at that point in time, her interaction with Asians and her attitude towards Asians, you know, we've talked about the oppressed becoming the oppressor. Well, everybody has somebody that, this is a, a sad fact of humanity, everybody has somebody that they're biased against, somebody that they're, they're prejudiced against, somebody that they've had negative encounters with. So hopefully, as an intelligent growing being, you outgrow all that stuff. You don't put girls' pigtails in ink wells anymore. You ask them on a date. Yes, I do think it's unfortunate. I do hope she gets to do more with her life and her career, but I think it's a complex, complex issue. So now what happens with the new editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue? Should, should they just fold Teen Vogue, man, after this? Because if they hire a new editor-in-chief, they're going to have to hire an editor-in-chief that the staff is okay with. So you have a company where you're the one paying these people's 401ks, you're paying their career, you're paying their lifestyle, you're paying their comfortability in their position, you're paying for the rise in their careers and the stock value of working at Teen Vogue and everything that means they, Condé Nast, is in charge. But anytime you have to relent your authority to your employee who then is calling the shots on who they want, bro, time to fold the business. Time to fold the business. Because you can't have your staff running your company. You can't. You can't. You, as the owner, you can't let that happen. It's like somebody comes over and says, I'm taking over your house. Why? It's my house. Not anymore because I said so. Because we live in a politically correct you know, world. So get the hell out of my house now. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate with you. I mean... I think that too many corporations have cultures that are toxic to the workers, whether it's Amazon or Google or any number of companies where there's sexism, there's racism, there's nepotism. There's, it's always been that way. But at the end of the day, no, you may be in charge, quote unquote, but the people who work for you, they're the ones that do the work of the company. The company is not the owner. The company is the people who work for the company. Mike, now, if you and I had brown and black media and that happened to us, we would not be, yeah, of course. Why don't you kick us out and you guys take over? Because that's <laughs> I didn't such say a they nice took little over. thing. I didn't Come say on, they man. Over. That's what they're doing. They're taking over. And at some point I go, fine, listen, I get it. That person was racist and everything, but- to have the staff tell you who to hire? Dude, I would never, if I did that at my own job, I'd say, bro, did I get things mixed up? Am I the owner of the company? Because last I saw, I'm getting a check, which means I'm the employee, and I should probably respect some boundaries. So this is what I'm going to say, Mike. What if they put in another person and that they find that they said something when they were 12? Like, at some point, 
what, how are you going to hire people if you're constantly being berated by the staff? Well, I, again, I, I don't see it that way. I feel like, yes, if you give somebody power, if you give the staff power, could they abuse it? Yes. If you give the boss, he's got power, he or she, could they abuse it? Yes. Power can be abused. But in this case, do I think it's extreme? Do I think she should have been fired over this? No, I think she should have definitely done some work uh, and they should have given her the chance to. But they made this move, I think, because of money. At the end of the day... I don't even think it's really the staff. I don't think they cared whether the staff liked it or not. I think it's the fact that they were losing money from Ulta Beauty and potentially more advertisers. That's why they got rid of her. I don't think that they care so much, oh, the staff didn't like it. I don't think that that's it. I think that the outside world and advertisers, that's my take on it. It's going to be interesting to see what Alexi now does in her career because now she's canceled. Yeah. Who's going to take her, Mike? Who's going to take her now? Ah. She has the cooties, unfortunately. Yeah, but she could do a talk show. Uh, well, let, let's see. Maybe she uses the notoriety in to kind of translate that into you know money like a Candace Owen or something That's like right. that. Well, she'll make her the third partner on Brown and Black. So, Jack, one of the stories that just broke this week in, I think, in the last year, I've seen more first black, first Latino, first female, first Asian, first everything forever. And Entertainment Tonight, you, you, you were talking recently about what you thought might be the death of the entertainment show. So I'm really curious to what your thoughts are here because I feel like these entertainment shows are fighting for relevancy. So Entertainment Tonight hired their first black woman to anchor, and that's her name is Nichelle Turner. So she's the co-host there. You, as someone who's been doing this for as long as you have, you have a lot more insight about this business. Do you think that this is going to make a difference? Is this a, a bid for relevancy, or are they just trying to move with the times? What's your take on this hire? I think this is a little bit more hyped up than it should be, Mike. It's great that Miss Turner is the first female black anchor on Entertainment Tonight. But the reality is, is it's a great hire. I just don't think that the exclusive, the variety broke as look what's the implication is like, this has never happened before. We must stop all the presses and just sit back and reflect on this moment of this history being done in television will go down in history as one of the greatest moments of 2021. That's not what the implication is. Entertainment Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is a news magazine that's been around since the 1970s. It's the first of its format. It's... uh. A, a groundbreaking format for entertainment and people within the entertainment industry, especially reporters, journalists, correspondents, etc. And 
now that it's on its last legs, Nancy O'Dell leaves and Miss Turner steps in. But Entertainment Tonight, much like Access Hollywood, Mike, and I said this to you in the last episode, it's on its last legs. To give it to her now, when the show is no longer in its prime, where the show is fighting to stay on, she could be there for another six months to a year, and then she's gone, and then that headline just doesn't seem that strong anymore. You know, they're they're they're, they're touting that it's now two black anchors. I go, there should have been two black anchors in the 1990s, in the early 2000s, but not in 2021 where everyone's shifting over to streaming, where the show just seems outdated at the moment. And, you know, unfortunately, it just doesn't have the weight, it doesn't break the news that a regular Twitter feed can do today, you know? And they are no longer the, the, the leaders in the space. The leaders now are the journalists themselves on Twitter and social media. They're breaking news in a second, doing a live or going to Clubhouse and breaking news there or breaking news on a podcast. But no one's watching TV and definitely no one's doing appointment TV for entertainment that just always seems sponsored or propagandized. For a lot of these celebrities, there's no hard hitting news here. There's no hard hitting. That's the problem. It's that they they stayed feeling like a commercial for Hollywood as opposed to evolving to a hard hitting entertainment show that we can all sort of be proud of. I have to say, I do think you're right. I think it's had its day. And I think it's sort of like movie magazines, movie magazines, you know, movie star. There was a time where people read that because that's the only you could get movie star news. And that kind of went away. People magazine kind of picked up the mantle. But even like who reads people now? People is online, but it's not really a relevant publication. I did think it was kind of suspect that Variety gets the exclusive that's not uh, that's not the biggest story in the no, world. No, it's it's not. And again, congratulations to Miss Turner for but she's been the correspondent there for years. You know what it feels like? It feels like they're like, listen, you know, we're in our last legs here. Uh we might not be renewed for next season. Um, but Nancy O'Dell left and the world right now, everybody wants a black anchor, a black face. Instead of having to go get somebody completely new and have to develop them, Turner's right here. She's been here. Everybody loves her. Just move her in. So it seems earned. It seems earned, but at a moment where it kind of doesn't matter as much, especially in that enter. Now, if they were reinventing entertainment tonight and creating a brand new digital show with millions and millions of dollars back in it and she's the lead, okay. Now I get it. Now that's something cool, something new. It's like putting out a new album. But what if you're the band that's been playing the same songs the last 30 years and, you know, they they finally say, hey, listen, our the lead singer is about to croak. Why don't you just step in for the last couple of dates on the world tour? It, I don't think it's cool what they did to her, man, you know, and I'm sure she's proud and glad about it. But it's messed up the way they did that. I know what something like that feels like. You know, I, I I know what it's like when nothing seems to be working, and then all of a sudden you've been the person they should have hired like years ago. But now they're like, hey, well, you've always wanted it, right? Well, let's step in now because all our options are out. That's what I don't like about it. But 
congratulations to her. She'll be great. That's it for this 42nd episode of Brown and Black. If you like the show and if you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by the award-winning Joshua Tirado. You can follow our comments and opinions on Brown Black Podcasts on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We'll talk to you next time on another episode of Brown and Black. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.